Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. beautiful city or is that a beautiful city oh that's a beautiful city george they can't find the bag they lost our luggage jack lemon and sandy dennis are the out-of-towners in neil simon's outrageous comedy about new york city oh that's huh? what's wrong put your hands up When they take you for an out-of-towner, they really take you. You mean to tell me that I was mugged while I was sleeping? You're not telling me you didn't hold the room for me. Man, move it! Oh, my God, we're being kidnapped. I'm a business executive from a folks. Look, I've got no place to sleep. I've got no money. I want to know what the city intends to do about this. Surrender. You hear that, New York? We don't quit. Now, how do you like that? You go ahead and you can rob me and starve me and break my teeth and my wife's ankles. I'm not leaving. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Out of Towners from 1970. The studio is Paramount Pictures. The release date was May 28, 1970. The running time, 98 minutes, and was rated G. Now, I would have to assume that most of the listeners of this podcast have seen the 1999 remake with Steve Martin, Goldie Hawn, and John Cleese. And funny enough, I've never actually seen that version, but I saw the original from 1970 because of my mom, who really enjoyed the original version when I was a kid. And to go off on a bit of a tangent, as great as Steve Martin is, he's kind of the go-to remake actor. It didn't start that way for him, but by the late 80s, the trend began. Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Father of the Bride, The Out-of-Towners, Cheaper by the Dozen, and The Pink Panther. But I digress, because we're talking about the original Out-of-Towners now, so let's get into the main cast. Jack Lemmon plays George Kellerman. Lemmon was already a huge star, and Hollywood royalty by 1970, so let's go through his best-known films up to that point. He had Mr. Roberts, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Days of Wine and Roses, Irma La Deuce, The Fortune Cookie, and The Odd Couple. Sandy Dennis plays Gwen Kellerman. Dennis's career began in the early 1960s with Splendor in the Grass with Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty. Her other notable films prior to The Out-of-Towners was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and George Segal. Dennis actually won Best Supporting Actress for that film. Two other successful films she appeared in prior to 1970, Up the Down Staircase and The Fox. The director, Arthur Hiller, he began as a TV director in the 1950s, and that lasted through most of the 1960s. His big year was 1970, though, where he directed both The Out-of-Towners and Love Story with Ally McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. It's not often when the screenwriter is a bigger name than the director of the film, but in this case, it holds true with The Out-of-Towners because it was written by Neil Simon, and Simon was one of the most revered playwrights and screenwriters of his era. But this was still early on in his film career. 
but he had already had success with Barefoot in the Park, The Odd Couple, and Sweet Charity. In many ways, John Hughes was kind of like Neil Simon in the sense that he was more popular usually than some of the directors that directed his films that he wrote. Originally, Simon wrote a few humorous vignettes as part of his play called Plaza Suite. He then realized that these scenes could be part of an entire film adaptation, and The Out-of-Towners was born. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins with George and Gwen Kellerman, Jack Lemmon, and Sandy Dennis in a panoramic view of their suburban Ohio home as they're leaving to go to the airport. As usual, Jack Lemmon plays a neurotic type of character. He's rushing Gwen to be ready an hour before the plane leaves because they might get a flat tire driving to the airport. Keep in mind, this is 1970. You didn't have to be at the airport hours in advance to get through security before your flight left. It was much simpler times. The reason for this trip is that George has an interview for a potential promotion with the corporate office in New York City. If he gets a promotion, the family would relocate to New York. But George is nervous about everything. But Gwen is very supportive of a potential move. So George tells Gwen not to spoil her appetite by eating airplane food since they have a very nice dinner plan at the Four Seasons restaurant that night. And even though Gwen wanted to carry one of her bags onto the plane, George just insists that they let the airline handle everything. You can kind of foreshadow at this point of the potential issues that are going to arise. And again, since this is 1970, instead of the tunnel that connects to the plane from the check-in gates like today's flights, the passengers board the plane straight from the runway. Once on the plane, Gwen almost accepts the complimentary meal, but George tells the stewardess, and I'm going to use the 1970s vernacular of stewardess, that they will not be eating, much to her surprise. Gwen's a bit miffed, but goes along with George's wishes. The flight is smooth, and they're scheduled to land five minutes earlier than scheduled. George is super excited. However, that quickly changes when the captain announces that there is a traffic problem at JFK Airport, and there will be a 20-30 to minute delay while they circle for the go-ahead to land. By the way, the main stewardess on the plane is played by Anne Prentice. Now, you might remember me talking about her in the movie My Stepmother is an Alien, where she played the voice of Bag, Kim Basinger's alien assistant. You can go back and listen to that episode. Well, 20 minutes comes and goes, and George gets more antsy by the minute, worried about his luxurious dinner reservation. And then there's more delays due to the fog and turbulence, and George gets more annoying with every announcement. And then when George finally decides he wants some coffee and food, he discovers that not only are they out of coffee, but they can't cook food while landing. (laughs) Should have eaten that meal, George. Well, over three hours goes by, and it's well past their dinner reservations before they get the announcement that due to the weather, they can't land at any of the New York airports and will instead land in Boston at Logan Airport. Once at Logan, it's mass chaos. George tries to find if there's any more flights that night. There are not, so he decides to see if they can take a train. In the meantime, Gwen tries to get their luggage, which, of course, cannot be found. And because of this film, and seeing it at a young age, it's why I always try to only pack for a carry-on. I realize it's difficult for long trips, but hey, I'm just saying. Ms. Hazel Marshall, please report to the United Flight Information Company. Gwen! Gwen! Gwen, 
Come on. We ain't leaving in 20 minutes. Where are the bags? They can't find them. Oh, I hope they got a dining car because we're going to have to eat on it. They can't find what? The bags. They can't find the bags. Our bag? What do you mean they can't find our bags? I can't say it's simpler than that, George. They can't find the bags. They lost our luggage? Do not shout at me. They lost our luggage? They didn't lose it. They just can't find it. Oh. They'll find it. Well, suppose they don't find it. Well, then it's lost. I just said that. Come on. We got 20 minutes to find our lost luggage. Passengers yeah. arriving on flight 347 may now claim their luggage excuse at the United Baggage Area. Excuse me. Ah, uh, excuse me. If you don't understand, I've only got 20 minutes to catch a train. You people seem to have lost my bags. A large brown one and a small gray one. Yeah, well, you don't have to describe them, dear. We got the clink checks. What do they look like? We, a large brown one and a small gray one. Could you hurry, please? We've only got 20 minutes. You don't see them here? Well, of course we don't see them here. Why would we ask you if we saw them here? All right, mister. It's not going to help to get excited. Yeah, well, it's not going to hurt you. Look, what's the difference if I get excited as long as I get my bags? This man is trying to help you. He's helping me not get excited. He's not helping me get my bag. Well, we're going to miss the train. Can I see your claim checks? It's a large brown one and a Small gray one. You should have carried the little one. There's two bags. That's right. Two bags, both lost. A large brown one and a small gray one. And you didn't see him come out? I wasn't here. My wife didn't see him come out. I didn't see him come out. No, I don't see him here. Well, I can see you don't see that. Is there somebody else that I can talk to? I lost and found. Well, not yet. We just found out they Will were lost. Will you let me handle this? How could we? We just found out they were lost. All I can suggest is lost and found. Right. Well, then what are you doing looking at my claim checks? Why didn't you just say try lost and found he, instead of reading my claim checks? He's trying to help He you wasn't helping. And he was just reading. What's your name? Vito. Yeah? Well, if you don't find him, I'm suing you people for losing my bags, missing the train. What kind of a way is this to run an airline? And you say you didn't see the bags come out? Gonna read the claim checks again. I got 12 minutes to catch a train. There's no cause for alarm, Mr. Uh... Kellerman. What's the difference what my name is? We're just gonna waste time discussing my name. Oh, George Kellerman. George Kellerman. All right, there's 10 seconds going discussing my name. Now, in 11 minutes, the most important train of my life is gonna pull out of South Station. We're standing here talking about my name. Well, let me say, first of all, Mr. Kellerman, that TIA certainly assumes all responsibility for lost I don't luggage. want your responsibility. I just want my clean shirts. I got a business meeting at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Yes, my husband has an important business meeting at 9 o'clock tomorrow I just morning. said that, Gwen. What are you wasting time telling him what I just said? Well, we'd be glad to put you up in a hotel in Boston tonight, and you can make our 7 a.m. flight to New York in the morning. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Well, suppose New York is still fogged in. Well, we can't guarantee the weather, of course. You can't guarantee a large gray suitcase and a small brown one. It's a large brown one and a small And what's gray. the difference what color they are if they're lost? Well, I see no reason to assume it won't show up. I saw no reason to assume I wouldn't be in New York tonight, and I'm in Boston looking for baggage that you assume isn't lost. Is something wrong? Yes, my husband has an ulcer, and his medicine is in the assumed Come on. We'll be at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. I don't get my baggage by tomorrow morning. Tomorrow afternoon, your lawyers are going to hear from my lawyers. You got my name right? Oh, yes, sir. Kellerman. Uh, Frank Kellerman. George! George Kellerman! You see, first you waste my time until I try to get my name right, and then you get my name wrong. George! George! First they lose my baggage, then they're going to send it to some not thing. Frank Kellerman. You're going to hear from me if I don't hear from you. <laughs> and the claim person was none other than Billy D. Williams in one of his first movie roles. And you can understand why George has an ulcer. He's a complete mess of a human being. So George and Gwen try to grab a taxi to try to make the last train to New York, though they only have 10 minutes before it departs, and it's a 15-minute drive. But luckily, the train is slightly delayed, so they rush to make it. However, George only has a $20 bill for a $1.75 cab fare. The cabbie doesn't have change, so George is stuck giving the guy a full 20 and asks him to mail him the change. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one, George. 
Then there's a mad dash to the train, and they make it in time, only to find out that they got on the wrong train. (laughs) The correct train is now leaving the station without them. Through all of this, Gwen is totally rational and just tells George to call the office in the morning and explain what happened and they would almost positively reschedule. And in reality, of course, this is what everyone in George's situation would do. But this is a movie and George just has to get to New York for his 9 a.m. interview the next day because any schmuck cannot arrive on time and this would look poorly to the big bosses, according to George. George finds out there's another train station in Longview, which will take them to New York if they hurry. They end up getting the same cab driver, which is lucky, since now they can just deduct that fare from the 20 that he already got. They do make it to the Longville train in the nick of time, but it's extremely overcrowded. And George's ulcer is killing him, and his medication is, of course, in his luggage, which they cannot find. Finally, George agrees to eat some food, but it doesn't go as planned either, and they have to wait in a huge line to get into the dining car. How long we were in line? Two hours. Two hours. That's how long. Chicken sandwich and coffee. Can we see a menu, please? We just got sandwiches and drinks. Oh. Hey, two chicken sandwiches, please. Sorry, no chicken. And that chicken? Yeah, that's chicken. When he eats that, that's the end of the chicken. They're out of chicken, George. Got ham or cheese? No ham. Just cheese. No cheese. No cheese. What do you have? Peanut butter on white bread. What else you got? More peanut butter on white bread. I ran out of everything a few minutes ago, ma'am. But don't you have anything else? My husband isn't allowed to eat peanut butter or white bread. I got saltine crackers and green olives. That's all, ma'am. We didn't expect 350 people tonight. No, ma'am. All right. If I bring my wife the peanut butter sandwich, I'm going to have the crackers and olives. And one coffee and one milk. Sorry, ma'am. No coffee, no milk. No milk. No milk. I got tonic water and clam juice, but they ain't cold. Uh, do you want the clam juice? Warm? With crackers and olives? Uh, never mind the drinks. Yes, ma'am. Is that separate checks? No, I'll pay the whole thing. Yes, sir. I was going to take you to dinner at one of the best restaurants in the world. Here you are eating peanut butter on white bread with nothing to drink. If you ever get your mouth open again, I wouldn't blame you if you never talked to me. Oh, my God. What's wrong? I lost my left eyelash. <laughs> so they arrive in New York around 2 in the morning, and George wants to sue everyone and everything for his inconvenience. They try to get a taxi to go to their hotel, only to discover that there's a taxi strike going on. Actually, the entire transit system is on strike. The subways, the buses, everything. They decide to walk the eight blocks to the Waldorf Astoria, only to have it start pouring rain. As they run through the streets aimlessly, trying not to get drenched, there are tons of piles of garbage sitting in the streets since the garbage trucks are on strike as well. They finally arrive completely rain-soaked to their hotel, only to discover that their reservation is no longer good because it's now the next day, and it's the middle of the night. (laughs) And because of the transit strike, all of the hotel rooms were filled, and their room has been given away because they didn't check in on time. So, as you can imagine, George plans to sue the hotel now, too. The hotel says that they'll have a room free at 7 in the morning, 
and that they can have it free of charge and they can stay in the lobby until then. Of course, George just won't hear of it. Then the baggage claim in Boston calls the hotel to say that their luggage is in Ohio. <laughs> what happened was a power outage occurred when they checked in their bags at the Ohio airport and they never even got shipped. The quickest the luggage will arrive in New York is 8 in the morning. So while discussing their predicament, a shady-looking character overhears and says George and Gwen can stay at a tiny motel near there. Of course, it'll cost them $10. Well, that's the finder's fee for the guy. It's 20 to stay at the motel. George pays the guy 10 bucks, and they head to the supposed motel. The guy offers to walk them personally to the hotel, and no surprise, he's really a mugger and pulls a gun on them and takes all of their cash. George and Gwen go to the police station to report the mugging, which is a complete joke because there's no way that the police will do anything. There's also a great cameo from Ann Mira, who is also reporting about her stolen handbag. If you didn't know, Ann Mira is the mother of Ben Stiller and the wife of Jerry Stiller. Remember George's father in Seinfeld? So Stiller and Mira were also a great comedy duo in the 1960s, if you didn't know. So the officer on duty suggests that Gwen and George stay at an armory where it's a makeshift shelter and they can sleep on an army cot and get some coffee and donuts. A pair of officers give them a ride, but then before they make it to the armory, a call comes in about a holdup and they have to drop off George and Gwen eight blocks away. George refuses to get out of the police car and the officers make the call to bring them along to the holdup. Of course, this ends up becoming a high-speed chase through New York City. The robbers end up crashing and escaping on foot. The two officers chase them while George and Gwen wait in the back seat. However, two of the robbers end up evading the police and then steal the police car with George and Gwen in it. Now they've been kidnapped. Eventually, the robbers drop George and Gwen off in Central Park and they drive away. Gwen now has broken heels on each of her shoes and takes them off, but then she cuts her foot. George decides to carry her through Central Park, which is hilarious, especially in the middle of the night. Finally, they decide to just sleep under a tree in the park. However, a mysterious man ends up hovering over them, and all we hear is Gwen's common refrain, which is, Oh my god! George wakes up the next morning, and Gwen is nowhere to be found. Frantic, George searches for Gwen in the park. Oh. What's that? 
dog's collar came off. Uh-huh. Corky. Owner, Mrs. Nancy Silverberg. Uh-huh. Okay, Corky, Mrs. Silverberg. Attention, Board of Health. There's still a little left, George. Yeah, uh, here, why don't you eat it? You sure it's all right? I mean, you found it in a bench, a oh, dog's been at no, it. Oh, no, that's got... It's got dextrose and corn syrup, a nice, and you need the energy, George. You eat it. Yeah. But, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> oh. I was thinking, you could have been having your breakfast in bed this morning, huh? Orange juice and eggs and sausages and buttered toast with marmalade and a pot full of hot coffee. Instead... You've eaten Phil Cracker Jack and a dog left over in an underpass in Central Park at exactly... Where's my watch? What? Where's my watch? Don't get excited, George. I'm not excited. Where's my watch? It just all happened so quickly. What happened so quickly? You what? said you wouldn't get excited. But that's before you said it all happened so quickly. Where's my watch? I gave it to a man in a black cape while you were sleeping. My watch? You gave my $200 watch to a man in a black cape. Why? Because it looked like he had a knife under the black cape. That's why I told you it all happened so quickly. I, why didn't you wake me up? Because I didn't want you to get knifed by a man in a black cape. You mean to tell me that I was mugged while I was sleeping by a man in a cape? I don't believe that. You were robbed while walking with a man with an umbrella. You believed that, didn't you? He didn't ask for any money? He didn't say anything. He just took the watch and ran. You mean he didn't ask you for the watch? You just gave it to him? I had to. He had a knife under the cape. Did you see the knife? A man doesn't stand over you at 4 o'clock in the morning in a cape if he doesn't have a knife, does he? I don't know. It never came up before. I don't want to discuss it. Here are your shoes, Bob. I don't want my shoes. You wear them. I don't have an interview at 9 o'clock. You wear your shoes. I don't have a watch. I don't know what 9 o'clock is. I don't need the shoes. Oh. I don't want to wear or discuss your shoes. Eat your cracker, Jack. Oh, I'm sorry, George. I guess I must be a little irritable. I am sorry about your watch. George, I was thinking uh, we could go to the Traveler's Aid Society. They lend money to people who are stranded. We could find out where the office is and we could walk right over there. What do you think, George? George, what do you think? I think I just busted her tooth. <gasps> On the Cracker Jack? Who must have swallowed the prize? I don't know, they felt like a little tin toy. Let me see. Right in the front, right in the front of my mouth, the front. There goes my smile. Oh, let me look. Maybe it's not oh, busted. Oh, I can feel it with my tongue. It's can busted. Can I look? Maybe it's not busted. You're right. It's busted. Uh huh. Well, that does it. 
Because I can't possibly... I, if I got money, if I got shaved, if I got my suit pressed, I could never get that job without a smile. Maybe we could find a dentist he could cap it. For four cents. We could ask Traveler's Aid. They only aid travelers. They don't cap teeth. I'm just making suggestions now, George. Here's your shoes. Try to find the Traveler's Aid office. Do you hear that? Hear what? Uh, whistling. So, oh, I'm whistling through my broken tooth. I don't hear oh, it. Oh, yeah, I on the yes, yes. No. I hear it. It's a whistling no. sound. You think they're gonna give the job to a man who can't smile and who talks with a whistle on his S's? Mm -hmm. Not on your sweet life. So, okay, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the whistle. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> then, as they attempt to leave the park, they come across a little boy sitting on a bench by himself crying, and he only speaks Spanish. So George gets this bright idea. See if he's got any money on him. What? See if he's got any money in his pockets. Then we can call the traveler's aid and they'll send someone to take care of all of us. You want me to go looking through his pockets for yes. money? A poor little Spanish boy. Is that what if you If he want? wants us to help him, he's got to help us. I'll do it. Suppose somebody sees you. What would you explain to him? That the child is lost and uh, we've only got four cents. So we were... See what you mean. Come on, anyway. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna look for some money. Hmm? The narrow? Did you say that? No, my name is George. I'm your friend. Your friend, amigo? Huh? Now be a nice little boy. I just wanna look in your pockets, see if you have a time. You there! You know, we got little. Oh, I, I, I didn't see that. There's nothing wrong. I'm a business executive from Ohio. My wife can verify Take that. Take your hands off that little boy! Oh no, you, uh, you, you have the wrong idea. You see, uh, I, uh, the child is lost, and I was looking for money because I was mugged last night by a man. Well, that went wrong very quickly. <laughs> okay, so there's about 20 minutes left. What's going to happen? Will they ever get out of the park alive? Or will they be arrested by the cop chasing them on a horse for a potential child molestation? <laughs> does George even make it to his interview? And even if he does, will he be in the same clothes? It's all answered, and you'll just have to watch the film to find out. The ultimate ending is terrific and just hilarious. All right, some fun facts. Part of the reason the film is so funny is that most of the scenarios were really part of New York life back in the late 1960s. For example, there was a 1966 transit strike, a 1968 sanitation strike, and the decline in services of the New Haven Station, and then the out-of-control crime rate of downtown New York and Central Park in that era all occurred. Now, I usually don't have spoiler alerts, but there's a part towards the end of the film where Jack Lemmon's character is standing on a manhole cover, and he moves just in the nick of time before it explodes. This really happens, so check that out. Lemon was almost killed in that manhole explosion scene. The blast was much stronger than anticipated, and instead of only lifting the manhole cover up you know, a few inches and away from the hole, it threw it several feet in the air. A few seconds later, it, fall, it fell hard in the ground and was very close to Jack Lemmon's head. He was then hit in his left leg when the cover bounced, and although he was startled and in pain, he, he stayed in character as a true professional, and that shot was the one that was used in the final film, so definitely check it out when you watch the movie. Again, I can't comment on the remake. Usually Steve Martin's great, and I love Goldie Hawn, and John Cleese is great, so I'm sure the remake is well done, but in this case, 
see the original first. You can't go wrong with Jack Lemmon, and I know this one's good because I've seen it. And I'll be back next week for yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.